0: Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of Nutrition Pearls, the official podcast from NASGANS Council for Pediatric Nutrition Professionals, or CPNP. I'm your host, Melissa Talley, and I'm a pediatric GI dietitian at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Joining me today is my co-host, Bailey Cope. Hi, Bailey. How are you today? Hey, Melissa. I'm doing great. Now that we're on our third episode, our listeners learned a little bit about me, Jen, and Megan. And I'm sure our listeners are very eager to learn about you. Our last, but certainly not least, co-host to introduce. Can you share a little bit about yourself
1: to our listeners? Thanks, Melissa. Sure. I am a registered dietitian and board-certified specialist in pediatric nutrition in my private practice, Atlanta Pediatric Nutrition, as well as in outpatient pediatric GI at GI Care for Kids here in Atlanta, Georgia. I've practiced in the field of pediatric nutrition for 20 years, uh, 17 of which are in outpatient pediatric GI. And I also have a son with celiac disease. Wow,
0: that is so great to have experience both in private practice and the larger hospital outpatient setting and in your personal life with your son. I'm sure you see a wide variety of GI diseases in your 20 years. Would you say you have a favorite area of GI?
1: I really enjoy it all, but if I had to choose my favorite, then it would be a tie between working with a variety of allergic diseases as well as managing enteral nutrition. I love complicated cases that keep me on my toes.
0: Right. There's something about the challenge of those complex kids who keep this area of work interesting and exciting. I know I look forward to those patients as well. And speaking of complicated patients, today we will be talking about eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE with one of our special guests. So what do you say we introduce them? Let's do it. So today we will be talking with someone who plays a special role in my life as a mentor, colleague, and good friend. Sally Schwartz is a registered dietitian working with the Department of Gastroenterology Hepatology and Nutrition at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. She obtained her B.S. in Nutrition and Dietetics at Northern Illinois University and Dietetic Internship at University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Sally has been a registered dietitian for 24 years, working at Lurie Children's for the last 20 years. Her area of special interests includes eosinophilic disorders, inflammatory bowel diseases, and celiac disease. Sally has authored chapters, manuscripts, and worked on guidelines on pediatric gastroenterology nutrition topics, and is an invited reviewer for the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Sally is also well-known as an active member of CPMP, having held positions including president and communications chair. In her downtime, Sally enjoys spending time with her husband and son, running in yoga, and coaching her son's track team. There's a lot to learn here, so let's get on to the show. Sally, thank you so much for joining us
2: on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, come and talk about EOE and nutrition.
0: From your introduction, you wear many hats and have a lot of hobbies. You are now coaching your son's track team? Yes, I am. It's
2: my first year coaching, and just to give you an idea, last Sunday... The meet was canceled because it was freezing and there was snow and rain. And this Sunday, it's going to be 80 degrees. (laughs) Nice. That's Chicago
0: spring. I used to coach track two right out of my internship. And it was a really fun sport to coach because there's so many different events. Um, I did the distance runners when I coached. What event do you coach?
2: I'm primarily coaching Long jump, and I've watched a lot of YouTube videos, and I've gotten a lot of tips from my husband. It's just, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun.
0: I've really enjoyed it. You're learning as you go, too. Absolutely, that's awesome. So we want to get into our first question. Tell us about the best meal that you've ever had. Well, I do live in Chicago, which is, we have quite the restaurant scene here.
2: So I've had a lot of great meals. But honestly, I know this is going to sound cliche but I would have to say my wedding. It was in Key West and the reception was on the beach, you know, having all the family and friends that we love there. And then the food, the piece de resistance was our, don't laugh at me, mashed <laughs> potato bar, mashed potato. Ooh, yum. It wasn't your typical mashed potato bar with toppings like bacon bits and sour cream or cheese, which I love but it had a creamy seafood Newberg and a chicken masala as toppings. It was Yum. So delicious.
0: Yum! I mean, Florida, what better place to have seafood on some mashed potatoes? <laughs> Sounds yes. delicious.
1: Yes. <laughs> I I you have me room. wanting to go to Key West.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I remember a few years ago when I went to one of your virtual talks before I officially started at Lurie's. And at the time, EOE was a pretty new realm for me. But I remember being so inspired by hearing your talk and thinking, wow, I want to be as knowledgeable and as experienced as Sally one day. So it's truly an honor for us to have you on the show today. To start, we wanted to see how long have you been working with patients diagnosed with EOE? You clearly have a lot of research and involvement with these patients. So what initially sparked your interest in this patient population?
2: Yeah, thanks
0: so much. It's such nice words. I'm glad people
2: are actually listening when I do those virtual (laughs) webinars. You never really know what's happening on the other side of the screen. But I've actually been working with EOE at Lurie Children's for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in September. How did I become interested? You know, it's so interesting to me, this new diagnosis, because it's very relatively new, as you had mentioned. I became interested in diet because it was not only important to ensure adequate growth and development in children, but also help to manage and reduce the inflammation in children with EOE. We all become dietitians because we want to help people. And I enjoy working with children to nourish their bodies in hopes that they become healthy adults. And honestly, when I think about it, I, I really find myself extremely lucky to have been part of an excellent multidisciplinary team that have and continue to advocate and be innovators in diet therapy. I mean, when I really think back on it, EOE Clinic is my happy place at work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's so helpful to have that that support system with the people you work with. For people that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about EOE for those that might not be too familiar with it? Sure. Sure.
2: And again, we call it eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE for short. I will be using the latter, the the (laughs) EOE. But it is a chronic immune-mediated esophageal disease characterized by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction and also histologically by eosinophilic predominant inflammation. This esophageal symptoms can vary by age In our infants and younger children, they present often with feeding difficulties or feeding aversion, often sometimes malnutrition. Our school-age kids, we may see more vomiting and abdominal pain. And our teenagers and young adults tend to present more with dysphagia or difficulty swallowing and food impaction. Often, we may have kids come into the ER with a food impaction and they will get their scope during that visit and quickly get the diagnosis of EOE.
1: So Sally, what are some of the common allergens that are associated with EOE?
2: When we think about the most common food allergens that we know for IgE-mediated food allergies, they're the same. Milk, soy, egg, wheat, peanut, tree nut,
1: fish and shellfish. You've been working in medical nutrition therapy with patients for a long time. How has the diet therapy changed over the years?
2: I'll take us on like a step through. It's kind of a getting on a timeline here. When I first started working with EOE patients, nutrition therapy was elemental diet, which is nutrition provided by 100% amino acid-based formulas. We have come such a long way from removing all foods, and replacing with a formula to, in some cases, a one or two food elimination diet. So we're gonna go back in the time machine (laughs) for 20 years or so to talk a little bit more about the elemental diet. There was a landmark study by Dr. Kelly and colleagues at John Hopkins University that was published in 1995 in the Journal of Gastroenterology. This was the first study to use amino acid-based formula approach in children with EOE they had 10 children who in six to eight weeks of being on an amino acid-based formula had complete resolution in their esophagus. It was exciting. And also there was um, more studies that came out that confirmed this link of food allergens to children with EOE. And most recently with the elemental diet, there was a meta-analysis that has shown the overall efficacy of the elemental diet in treating or inducing remission in our children with EOE at 90%. So then we talk about the different types of diets after this. First came the test-directed diets based on allergy testing. We think of allergy testing, you think of skin prick testing, serum IgE levels, atopy patch testing, and all these were done to help initiate an elimination diet to find out what foods may be removed. This testing would often lead to long lists of foods to remove, which could be, I mean, at least 50 or more foods, which is quite daunting. Oh, yeah. Then we looked more at the next elimination diets to come into play were the empiric elimination diet. And this this was about 2006. Dr. Kagawala and our team at Lurie Children's decided to just pull out those most common food allergens like we had just talked about and see what would happen. Cow's milk, soy, egg, tree nut, peanut, fish, and shellfish. And what we did is we had them remove all those foods, which at the time was a lot more foods than they had been eating if they were just on formula or on a test-directed diet. And we saw that 70% of these patients responded to removing these foods empirically. Further research confirmed these results, leading to diet therapy becoming a first-line treatment for EOE. We noticed when we were looking at our patients a little bit more closely, too, that there were some of these of the most common food allergens that stood out a little bit more as more predominant triggers for EOE. We found that cow's milk was the most common at about 74%, wheat at 26%, egg at 17%, soy at 10%, and peanut at 6%. So based on those findings, we decided to do further elimination trials, us and of course, a lot of other people too. At Lurie, we decided to look at four foods. So those four most common foods, the milk, soy, egg, and wheat. And we did a multi-center study in 2017, which we reported that about 64% of our children had achieved remission after eight weeks on the diet. And again, when we talk about how we are finding out what does remission mean, It's when they look at the endoscopy, and they're counting the eosinophils, and they're looking for less than 15 eosinophils per high-powered field. The pathologist that is reading the slides and looking very closely at the tissue. Also in 2017, a group in Spain published a study using a different approach. They trialed what is known as a step-up elimination, which they started with a two-food elimination, milk and wheat for six weeks which 43% had achieved remission. The non-responders stepped up another step to a four-food elimination, which they pulled out eggs and legumes, and they found 24% of those patients achieved remission. And finally, for the non-responders of the four-food, there was another step up to that six-food elimination diet, adding the peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish, in which 30% of patients achieved remission. And finally, the last diet uh, was the, is the single food elimination diet. Milk, as we have talked about already, is the most common food trigger identified in children. At Lurie's, we looked at a single or a one food elimination diet. In 2022, last year, we published our data from a prospective study of about 41 children in which 51% showed histologic remission. So there's been a lot that's happened in the last 20 or so years. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, I think it's important to highlight the diagnostic criteria that you mentioned, Sally, you know, that it's 15 eosinophils per high power field, because in our experience, our pathologists are really good about counting the eosinophils now, um, but it wasn't always that way. And in order to tell whether or not a treatment is working, you have to be able to, to look at the eosinophil count and see if it's going down and if if it's below that threshold or if it's gone up or, you know, whatever. So I think it's important, um, you know, that our listeners understand how important that is.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the gold standard right now is the endoscopy or EGD in which the doctors actually take that scope and look for signs of inflammation and take those biopsies where they can look, the pathologist will look at the tissue and be able to count those EOs. And yes, I agree wholeheartedly with you, Bailey. In and back, back in the day, you may find endoscopy results that would just say, some or several, and there weren't counts there, which which was really frustrating. So they have come a long way. There's also what's known as an EREF score, which helps to evaluate the severity of EOE. It's actually an acronym that stands for five features when they look inside what they might see, edema, rings, exudate, burrowing, and strictures. But this cannot be used as a diagnostic tool. It will not give us a diagnosis of EoE, but it may show the physicians how severe the inflammation is.
0: And kind of going back to more of the diet therapy, I know you mentioned over time how it's transitioned. What were some of the challenges of the elemental diet and do we see people still using that in practice?
2: There are definitely several limitations to the elimination diet. There is a considerable number of endoscopies, which are very invasive procedures that are needed to assess for any inflammation. And if the diet trials are working, so it's not just the formula. And I would always go in after the physician and they would say, oh, we might do an elemental diet. And I would come in and say, okay, this is what this means. Mm -hmm. It's not just a period of time where you're just on formula for a couple months and then you don't have to do it again. It's going to take a long time because once they do respond, which we know it's a very high likelihood with the efficacy being about 90% with the elemental diet, we want to start to add foods back in. We start with the low allergenistic foods, which primarily in the beginning are fruits and vegetables. You're not throwing all fruits at one scope and then going. You have to really do it in a methodical way to make sure you're able to identify any causative foods. Because we do have kids who do respond to some of these really low allergenistic foods. And we limit the number to about three to four foods per diet trial. So think about that for a second. If you're at a year out of this diet, you may have on the high end, 16 foods that you've added back in. Primarily fruits and vegetables. We do have some lower allergenicity uh, grains or protein foods that we can add into, but that's usually one or two of those. So there's no way that the child can sustain their nutritional status without being on the elemental
0: formula. Right. And and that's a really good point with all the formulas out there these days and an increased use of more European formulas. I think it's important to talk about the differences between an elemental formula and a formula that is labeled hydrolyzed formula. I mean, it's all about the size, right? right. And
2: when we think about the elemental diet, the protein source are free amino acids. So as we know, those are the building blocks for our proteins. Hydrolyzed formula protein sources are generally milk or another protein that have been broken down, but not all the way to free amino acids. There are peptide chains and amino acids. And we have found that hydrolyzed formulas are not indicated for the use and treatment of eosinophilic disorders because they are not free amino acid based when i think about other limitations of the elemental diet besides just the length of time to get to to any foods and coming off of the formula taste is a big one trying to drink one cup a day can be very hard for some people and we have some teenagers that may need to drink you know upwards of three and a half liters a day it can be very hard to do i also think about cost of elemental formulas they're quite expensive compared to a regular diet or to standard formulas, and whether or not insurance covers formulas can be questionable. Are you familiar with the patients and providers for medical nutritional
1: equity? I've heard a little bit about it, for sure, through uh, CPMP and NAS um, right. I haven't kept up with it as much, but I know you're really involved with that, <laughs>
2: Yes. You know, I wanted to mention that this is a coalition which involves NASPGAN and CPMP that represents patients and their families, caretakers, and medical providers, so all of us who care for um, those who require medical nutrition. A new Congress was just sworn in in January, and the bill needs to be reintroduced. So please check out nutritionequity.org to see how you can help. Go on CPMP or NASPGAN's website as well, Or if you just Google Medical Nutrition Equity Act or MNEA, it'll bring you right to the website.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The fact that amino acid formulas are now available in a a pretty good variety of flavors compared to years ago when they were all unflavored, that's helped with acceptance. But you still have those patients that the flavor fatigue still makes it challenging depending on how much they have to take in. I know when we use it, A lot of Toms are kids who have really severe feeding aversion and aren't eating anyway. Some of them already have tubes because of that.
0: So what tips do you have, Sally, for your patients that do have to take up to a liter a day by mouth?
1: I
2: like to lead with a positive. And really, this is an opportunity for the child to personalize this. We don't want to call it formula. I mean, that just sounds very negative. We can call it a shake. You can call it a smoothie. You can name it. I have a patient who calls his formula Pikachu punch. (laughs) Obviously he's a Pokemon fan, but yeah, we want to try to make it fun. I like to tell families to find a covered cup because when we drink anything, smelling is a big part of taste. So finding a Nice covered cup that's maybe insulated, a straw cup. I mean, go to your local coffee shop. They have them all over the place. You can find the one that she, the child likes. They can decorate it, put stickers on it, or maybe paint markers where they can make it their own. And again, that way it personalizes it and makes it more fun and positive. Mm-hmm. Like, just like you said, Bailey, there's lots of different fl- uh, flavors of these formulas now. Try them all. I stole one of the tips from one of the feeding therapists who said a good way to increase uh, volume of formula is to start with really small volumes, like even like little medicine cup size, where you're having them drink maybe 15 mLs a a few times a day and start to increase that amount. You can also fade the elemental formula into their current beverage. Um, If they're drinking almond milk, for example, you can try to mix in um, some powdered or ready to feed elemental formulas and see how they do with that. Or you can use it in a smoothie as well with some allowed fruits and vegetables, um, other foods that are allowed. And the most important thing is you need a structured plan. You cannot Mm -hmm. have them just walking around the house with their little straw cup all day long Because before you know it, it's 7 p.m. and they still have 40 ounces to drink. So by scheduling it out throughout the day, divide up what the total volume is. And if they can drink maybe six ounces or five times a day, they can get to their 30 ounce goal. Or trying to figure out if they drink a little bit more in the morning, a little less in the evening, so we can plan it out and make sure that they can be
1: successful with that. So... Kind of moving on from the elemental diets, you you talked a little bit about the elimination diets. How do you decide which is best for an individual patient? For example, how do you choose between, you know, doing a single milk elimination versus a four food or a six food elimination diet? That's a good question.
2: I mean, really it all comes down to a really good nutrition assessment. You get an idea of what the child is currently eating, What else is going on with the child? Is the child malnourished or or healthy? Are they restricting for other reasons? Do they have other IgE-mediated food allergies? Do they also have celiac disease? Are they on a low FODMAP diet? And really identify what foods are in the diet regularly that may be the causative food. If the child does not eat milk at all and not drink any milk and doesn't have any milk in any of the foods that they're eating or drinking, Milk is not going to be a good test trial to do an elimination diet on. We also want to look at the feeding environment. Where are they eating? Are they able to do this diet? What is their lifestyle like? Are they driving around in the car from activity to activity and cannot do any home cooking? Are they running through drive throughs And do they have the time that it takes to make special foods and try different diets and really focus on getting the nutrients in? that would be required to make all these changes in an elimination diet. Eating pattern is also something I look at too. Are they grazing? Again, are they structured? And also we like to think about how are they feeding? Like we wanna assess for any symptoms of feeding difficulties. Some questions I like to ask that are red flags. Is a child a fast or slow eater? Do you have a kiddo that's not able to finish their lunch at school that's coming home with a full bag of food because they are slow and methodical about chewing their food and drinking between bites to ensure that the food goes down? Are they preferring one type of food over another, like they prefer softer foods and liquids or purees to something a little bit more structured or chewy, like a piece of meat or something crunchy? are they gagging or choking? Are they having food impaction with eating? And looking at that big picture of all the different things that are going on too, what's their medical history, their labs, their meds, this all does play a part into what therapy we might try for these kids. And again, motivation. The parents are all gung-ho about it, but if, if the child is not even paying attention to you, not making eye contact, and they seem very upset about it, they are probably not going to be a good candidate for diet therapy. We have found some patterns in our research on single food and four food elimination diets that may help predict response to therapies. We found that a milk-free diet is noted to be more successful in older children without anaphylaxis or IgE-mediated food allergies. Our for-food elimination diets, we've identified females and asthma as predictors of a successful response to for food. And families that have a history of IgE-mediated allergies were predictors of poor responses. But really, when we think about it, our goal is to treat with the least restricted diet that we can for each individual patient, often starting with one to two foods versus four to six. With the family knowing that inflammation does not improve, we may need to restrict more. And of course, like you had mentioned, Bailey, if we have a kiddo, which I've had a run of these in the last few weeks of young toddler age kids with severe food aversion, multiple food allergies that we've gone straight to elemental diet with. So each diet does fit in. You just wanna make sure that you educate them so they understand what
1: the diet entails. Interesting. You talked a little about some of the, data that supports who's going to do better on which diet, can you talk a little bit more about the age of the patient? I know you had a recent abstract and whether or not that seemed to matter. Yeah, I think
2: a lot of that information, that those little patterns that we saw are quite anecdotal, but I wanted to really dig in and see what was happening. Does age matter in treatment response with elimination diet therapies for our kids with EOE? And so I I did a retrospective study looking at our kids that were on exclusively empiric elimination diets. We looked at six food, four food, and um, one food. We had 114 patients who were treated, and the medium age was seven. Of course, 75% of our um, patients were male, which goes with what we usually find in our EOE population. 46% were treated with a milk-free diet and 54% were treated with a multiple food elimination diet, so either six food or four food. Over half had an atopic history with IgE-mediated food allergy being present in about 42% of our patients. What we found was, which was actually kind of surprising to me, is that pediatric patients of all ages respond to diet treatment for EOE. The patient age at initiation of the the diet therapy did not predict histology response in pediatric patients. And our findings suggest that elimination diet therapy can be effective treatment for EOE regardless of age. I think again, we had 114 patients. I think more research still needs to be done in larger sample sizes. And also more research should be done looking for more of these predictors for success for diet therapies in EOE.
0: I think that's great. Earlier, you talked a little bit about um, the step-up and step-down approach when we were talking about the history of um, the diet. Can you explain this a little bit more for our listeners, the difference between step-up versus the step-down approach? Sure. Step-down
2: is like the classic, <laughs> right? The classic four-food or six-food elimination diet, which involves removing either four or six of those most common food allergens empirically. So, The first diet is you remove all of them. And then the doctor would perform an endoscopy to assess for remission. The remission again is defined as the histology being less than 15 EOs per high powered field. So if these children are treated, their EOs look good, they're under 15, they're feeling good, everything's good. We start one food back at a time. So again, it's one single food and then a repeat endoscopy to monitor for inflammation. And once we get through that whole line of foods, of course, if the child has an IgE-mediated allergy, we do not test those foods. We, they, they keep those out of their diet. But if remission is not achieved, we assess for accidental exposure. As we know, adherence can be difficult in mm-hmm. any type of diet therapy, whether even uh, an elimination diet can be even harder when it's sustained for a long period of time. So we work with families to ensure strict removal of Antigens, or we discuss another treatment, maybe the elemental diet or possibly medical therapy. The step up diet is the opposite. So we remove the two most common EOE food triggers and are stepping up to more restricted diets if they don't respond. So step one would be removing the most common foods, milk and wheat, followed by that endoscopy to assess for remission. If everything looks good, then we can introduce those foods back into test to see which food is the causative food, followed by the endoscopy to assess treatment. If the child does not respond to this two-food elimination, then we step up to the four-food elimination. Again, the four-food elimination is, we add the egg and the soy along with the milk and the wheat. The repeat endoscopy happens If they show that they are doing well, they are treated, then we can start the testing back down. But if they do not respond, we step up to the six food elimination diet, which takes out nuts, peanuts, fish and shellfish in addition to the other foods, getting you back to that classic six food elimination diet.
0: Okay. A follow-up on that, you're mentioning a lot of scopes. How frequently um, are you scoping between these diet trials?
2: You know, providers may vary, but I think it's pretty close to eight to 12 weeks per food trial. So at Lurie, we we generally do about three months. So we're at the 12-week margin, and then they have to try to see where they can get them in for an endoscopy to schedule them. But it usually lands about there.
1: Yeah, okay. that's the same at our facility. But sometimes we have parents, especially in our younger children, a lot of times with feeding aversion, that they don't want to scope every two to three months. So they may decide mm-hmm. to wait a little bit longer and that's perfectly fine. But we're the same. Yeah, that eight to 12 week time frame. Okay.
0: Is there a benefit of doing the step up versus... Uh, step down or is there one that you like um, to do more or is it more patient dependent?
2: Honestly, as a dietitian, our goal is to make sure that your child is eating well so they can grow and develop to do whatever they want to do as an adult. I like to be as least restrictive as I can be. The step up approach is less restrictive. We avoid unnecessary food eliminations and therefore there's less endoscopies. And it's a much faster way to find out each food, individual's food triggers. And obviously with that too, there's a less of an impact on the quality of life. More than not, we are often starting with a single food, the milk-free elimination, especially if the diet uh, is has lots of milk in it.
1: What are some of the concerns that you have for children's and their families who choose to follow one of the more challenging elimination diet therapies?
2: I really approach all elimination diets the same. Whenever we take, if it's one food out or eight foods or 20 foods, we must ensure that the family can feed the nutrients that they need for optimal growth and development. In younger children, restricted diets, definitely I worry about hindering their development of eating skills. This can lead to pediatric feeding disorders. I also worry about with our older kids and young adults, restricted diets can definitely impact their quality of life limiting their able ability to go grab a bite with their friends at a restaurant without really preparing for that and social gatherings. And all these challenges place children at risk for malnutrition and nutrient deficiencies. I feel like we always need to educate families on reading labels, providing allowed foods and ingredients to avoid over or under restricting of the food, which can often happen. I like partnering with my families, I love building a toolkit, which includes sample menus, shopping lists, meal planning, nutrient-dense foods, smoothie ideas. An SOS kit is something I always like to provide, too, when we think about what's an easy grab-and-go that you can do when you come home from a long day and you have to cook something, but you haven't prepared anything, having some soups that we know are safe, maybe the boil rice bags or already pre-cooked rice, which you can easily either boil or microwave. If they're allowed to have tuna, cans of tuna, peanut butter, if that's allowed on their diet. So having the little SOS kit where we have that in case I don't know what else to cook. And again, samples of elemental formulas, vitamin and mil- mineral supplement recommendations and tips on eating out, vacationing, holidays, all that stuff. I always like to provide all families with the tools um, so that they can be successful.
1: What starting an elimination diet, um, how long does it take for them to start noticing improvements if they were symptomatic?
2: That's a really good question. Older kids and young adults tell me that they've started feeling better within the week on an elimination diet, although some may not feel any different for a few weeks. This may correlate with how severe their inflammation is. I also have kids who don't think they're doing any better, and then they have their endoscopy and there's no inflammation. On the other side, I have kids who have no symptoms at all. So, really the symptoms don't correlate that well with disease activity.
1: Scoping is the only way to really tell
2: at this
0: point. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're getting better. The gold yeah. standard. So Sally, with any diet therapy, there's potentials for you know, nutrient deficiencies with gaps in eliminating one major food group. What micronutrients or macronutrients are there to be concerned about when we're following an elimination diet for these EOE kids?
2: There are so many nutrients attached to these most common foods. I'm gonna highlight some of the, the, the most concerning that we think about. And I'll start with our most common food allergen, milk. Milk is a significant source of protein in young children's diets. Sometimes that can make up to 50% or, or more of their calories. And we think about milk and cheese and yogurt and all that good stuff. Calcium, milk is our nutrition champion a source of calcium. <laughs> The fortified plant-based milks, calcium and vitamin D, fortified orange juice can be good sources as well. And vitamin D, our sunshine should not be considered a means of maintaining adequate vitamin D stores due to the dangers of UV light. So we will definitely need good sources of vitamin D. But there's other nutrients to consider as well when we think about milk. Iodine, which maintains normal thyroid function, did you know that dairy products provide almost 50% of total estimated iodine intake from food? It's a Good. lot. Oh, yeah. Good sources may include iodine-fortified plant-based milks, iodized salt, and the type of salt does matter. Not all salt is fortified with iodine. So you need to double-check your labels, kosher salt, your pink Himalayan salt. Double-check those labels because they n- may not have any iodine. And finally, we worry about vitamin B12, especially it can be at risk in our vegetarian patients. When we step up from the single food and go to the two-food diet, we've added wheat to the milk elimination, impacting calories even further, as well as enriched grains. And these grains are enriched with these additional B vitamins, thiamine, riboflavin, and niacin, as well as folate, iron. We also worry about zinc and fiber. When we're moved to the four foods, so now we've added soy and egg to the list. Egg can be a good source of of vitamin A, B vitamins, and selenium and choline. Soy, again, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, iron, zinc, and protein. And we're losing a lot of those choices that we had when we had the single food elimination. Our numbers of foods are getting less and less to provide nutrient-dense alternatives. And it gets more difficult to provide via the diet on a daily basis. And then finally, when we think about our six-food elimination diet, we're adding peanut, tree nut, and fish and shellfish to the mix, which again increases our risk by further limiting allowed food choices. In particular, I worry about protein. There go more protein sources and our essential fatty acids, uh, mainly omega-3 fatty acids, good sources of Omega-3s would include plant oils, such as olive, canola, and flaxseed oil and seeds. Calories can be decreased by almost 50% alone by removing multiple foods. So families must be educated on how to make up those lost nutrients with suitable replacements, which may include elemental formulas, Mm -hmm. vitamin and mineral supplementation, and often trying unfamiliar nutrient-dense foods.
0: Yeah, is there a a step where you recommend a multivitamin or would you recommend it right off the bat?
2: First of all, after the diet history, you want to make sure what the nutrition quality is of that child's diet. Mm -hmm. What are they eating? Especially when we're at a milk wheat free diet. Again, we're losing the B vitamins, the folic acid, the iron. I generally recommend starting at that point, but I might sooner depending on the quality of the diet. If they remove milk and they're just eating a bunch of chips and fruit snacks and Mm -hmm. not many nutrient foods, oh, they don't eat fruits and vegetables, that sort of
0: thing, then we definitely need to get a multivitamin on board sooner. So it goes back to getting that full nutrition assessment. Um, I know a lot of patients and families come to me with questions about plant-based milks and, you know, choosing that over a cow's milk or just in general, what are your opinions of a plant-based milk for these EOE kids? So
2: milk is the most common EOE food Mm -hmm. antigen. It's ideal to find an appropriate substitute. There are several types of plant-based milks. They vary widely in their nutritional content. And currently there's no regulation on these milks. Mm -hmm. Often I find parents think that these milks are actually healthier than cow's milk. Mm -hmm. When I think about the different types of milks, except for soy, is little consistency in the nutrient density and micronutrient content across the board. I kind of break down the plant-based milks into the grain milks. So, you know, generally um, rice, potato could fall in there or oat milk. Those tend to have a good amount of calories, but often most of the calories are coming from sugar to sweeten those milks. They tend to be low in protein. Usually these milks are calcium and vitamin D fortified, but you have to double check the labels. I've been noticing some of the grain-based milks have less fortification than they have in the past. There's legume-based milks that are soy and pea protein-based milks. They tend to have more protein in them, to have more calories. Again, some of those calories can be from sweetening and making them taste better, of course. And they, again, double checking for calcium and vitamin D supplementation. The nut-based milks, while nuts are really, really nutritious and nutrient-dense on their own, how they are made, there is so much water added to them that it really dilutes the nutrition out of it. They're very low in calories. If they are higher in calories, they may be a blend or have sweeteners, and they're very low in protein. You may get calcium and vitamin D supplementation, which is great. For a teenager who's healthy, maybe even a little overweight, this might be a good choice. But for our small children, drinking almond milk, which might be 30 to 60 calories a cup, is not going to meet their nutritional needs. There are some recommendations. The USDA 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends that only fortified soy beverage is considered as a dairy equivalent. In 2020, NASPAGAN published a position paper on plant-based milks, which their guidance was consistent with ASPAGAN, which is our European uh, NASPGAN sister or brother, mm-hmm. and Dracma, which is the World Allergy Organization's diagnosis and rationale for action against cow milk allergy. So all of them have the similar guidelines, which they recommend in young children, the use of hypoallergenic formulas or soy formula, or possibly soy, pea protein, or oat milk with a well-balanced diet monitored by a dietitian. Our older children, again, a carefully planned diet from plant and animal sources may include nutritional supplementation and that dietitian assessment of ensuring that they are getting a good quality diet overall. You know, there's a hot button topic of mine right now that's that Melissa, I know I've talked to you about before, is the right. FDA's labeling of plant-based milk alternatives. I recently got a ding on my email about a week ago, and the FDA has reopened their comment period for guidelines on labeling of plant-based milks until July 31st of 2023. Right now, the FDA is recommending that plant-based milk alternative products labeled with the term milk in their names, such as soy milk or almond milk, and have a nutrient composition that is different from milk, including a voluntary nutrient statement that conveys how the product compares with milk based on the USDA's nutrient criteria like protein, calcium, vitamin D. But if a plant-based milk alternative is not labeled milk as part of its name, but instead labeled with another term like beverage or drink, making that claim comparing to cow's milk is not required. These statements will help consumers make informed dietary choices when it comes to understanding certain nutritional differences between plant-based products and those that are labeled milk in their names and cow's milk. If you're interested, please go to the FDA's website to have a voice in this conversation. Again, we have till July 31st. Oh. The bottom line on plant-based milk <laughs> is that they may be used as part of a well-balanced diet with sufficient intakes of protein, calcium, and other essential nutrients in healthy children And RDs should be monitoring these kids closely.
1: Sally, can you talk a little bit about the protein quality of the plant-based milks and how to tell whether or not it's a quality protein? Because some of the pea protein milks that are out there are equivalent to cow's milk as far as the protein content, but is the quality of the protein the same as the quality of the protein that you get from cow's milk?
2: That's a really, really good question. We're so concerned with the number, how much protein, this looks good, it's equivalent, it's eight grams. But as dieticians, the most important feature for protein from a nutritional point of view, obviously is the quality, right? There are actually two scores that look at this very topic, protein digestibility, and the U.S. currently uses the PIDCA score, which stands for Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score. So what this score does is it's based on amino acid requirements for humans and their ability to digest them. It compares the amino acid profile of specific food protein against a standard amino acid profile with the highest possible score being one. The protein score of one means that the source of protein provides 100% of the amino acid requirements. The score is based on the ratio of the amount of the first limiting indispensable or essential amino acid in the protein source to the amino acid requirement of a one to two-year-old child. So Mm -hmm. PIDCA scores close to one can meet the growth requirements for children. Milk protein has a PIDCA score of one, as well as soy protein and other legume-based milks. they they tend to score higher than grain-based milks. Cooked rolled oats have a PIDCA score of 0.67, for example, and rice protein concentrate has a PIDCA score of 0.42. I did a little bit of a deep dive because that's the kind of person I am. um, And I reached out to a company of a popular pea-based milk to see what their PIDCA score was. And they reported to me that they were slightly deficient in methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan compared to casein and had less, slightly lower digestibility, which gives it an average PIDCA score of 0.7. But then we also have to think about the protein quality, but what about bioavailability in plant-based milks too? That can vary among products and is often not known. So when we think about what do we do with our families, this is a lot of information. Are we we giving the patient by saying, just have this plant-based milk, everything's okay. And and we may be missing out on nutrients for these kids. You wanna look at the food label for protein and look at the nutrition facts across from the grams. There is a column for the, the percentage of the daily value. This determines if a serving of food is high or low in an individual nutrient. If there's a percent daily value greater or equal to 10%, it's considered a good source of that nutrient. If it's greater than 20%, it's an excellent source of protein or of of that nutrient. On the FDA's label, they state, the percentage of the daily value is required to be listed if a claim is made for protein specifically, such as it says high in protein on the label, that's when it has to have that percent of the daily value. The percentage also has to be listed on the label if the product is intended for infants and for children under age four. However, if the product is intended for the general population, age four and above, a claim is not made about protein on the label, that percent daily value may not be required. So again, what do you do if you don't see it on there? Because it's often not there, the percentage of daily value treat these patients like we would a vegetarian or a vegan. We want to make sure they're getting complete proteins in their diet, ensuring that they're getting good diet quality and that they're getting all the nutrients that they need in their diet.
0: It's tricky. (laughs) Yeah, that is. Would you recommend those families go to the company's website to find out that number? You can and ask them about the score. And for our listeners, what does that score stand for? It's a, it's a PDCAA. Okay. okay.
1: And Perfect. it should be closer to one.
0: Yes.
2: One is okay. what we want it to be. That shows us that we have a complete essential nutrients, the essential
1: amino acids are being met. Okay. But if you, if the percent daily value is on the label, 10% is good.
2: It's a good source. It's better than not being 10%. Yes.
1: Okay. Okay. So to wrap things up, what do you think is the most challenging to patient implementation and ensuring success using the various diet approaches? My doctors are always concerned that it's going to be too difficult for some people. So, what do you find is the most challenging?
2: Yeah, I agree. Some of the doctors I work with, oh, he's a teenager, he'll never want to do the diet. But a lot of teenage boys may be interested in feeding their bodies and feeling good and feeling healthy. So really assessing the motivation of not just the parent, but the child and providing those tools that the patient and family will need to be successful. I talked about the toolbox, but also thinking about referrals as needed to feeding specialists for if there's um, a red flag for any pediatric feeding disorders or psychologists. I partner with psychologists a lot with our EOE kids for um, kids who may be experiencing sadness or anxiety due to these dietary restrictions or anxiety due to symptoms that they have. They're afraid of food impactions or if they are having any type of ARFID or restricted feeding behavior. And giving the family your availability, that they know that they can reach out to you if they have any questions. Uh, I was going through my emails this morning and one of my patients sent me a quick question. She's like, do you mind if I ask you? I said, absolutely not. Please shoot me a message. I'd rather have you ask than not know. So always being available for your Mm -hmm. families.
0: Or come back in three months and and be doing something completely wrong or or not recommended. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> right. and, then
1: that has to, and then you have to move the scope and delay adding anything back in. So I think that's important too. Right. And last but
0: not least, Sally, where do you see the need for future research? I know you mentioned earlier a little bit about your abstract and that we do need, you know, more research in EOE. Uh, where do you see the future research um, going for nutrition management?
2: just thinking back on everything that that has happened in the past 20 years, we've really, really come a long way in our diet treatment of EOE, from using formula to now often starting with one or two food eliminations. My hope for the future is really more personalized, or I guess the buzzword is precision nutrition therapy for our EOE kids, where we have the ability to predict which children may respond to diet therapy And possibly even predict what food antigen would be their food trigger so we can really improve the care of our families and patients.
1: Great. Well, Well, (laughs) we really thank you for joining us as our guest on this episode of CPMP Nutrition Pearls. I know I've learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners have as well. Before we end this episode, are there any final comments you
2: want to make? I just really want to thank you guys for inviting me to come on the podcast. This is is so much fun, and I really look forward to listening. One of my favorite things to do is listen to podcasts, so I'm really excited that CPNP has the podcast now. In regards to EOE, our goals as we look for the best way to treat our individual patients is to improve disease activity and minimize risks. For long-term inflammation, like strictures or narrowing, improving and maintaining nutritional status of our patients, and therefore improving health-related quality of life. We have a lot of different diets that we can use to manage our patients. We must keep in mind the full picture and work with families to choose the most feasible option for treating that child.
0: Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Sally. Uh, We're so glad that we had the chance to interview you for this special episode and our first clinical episode for Nutrition Pearls. That was such an educational episode. I know I learned a lot
1: and Sally was the perfect speaker on this topic. Yeah, she was great. Three takeaways from talking with Sally would be, number one, that EOE treatment has come a long way over the past 20 years. It's not nearly as restrictive as it used to be, and there may be areas where elemental diet is useful, but overall, we've gotten away from those more restrictive diets. I think the second takeaway would be just that getting a good diet history and the nutrition assessment is so important in determining the route of therapy for the family and getting a good idea of the feeding environment, foods in the diet, as well as if there are any aversions can help with your clinical judgment on if a patient is even a good candidate and help decide what diet is best. It's really important to look at the feasibility of the family for a shared decision-making process. The third takeaway would be that EOE is an exciting area to be involved in, and still a fairly new diagnosis. There's still so much research to be done. As a dietitian, we have a big impact in the medical nutrition therapy and decision-making for this patient population. If
0: you don't already, please consider following the show. We will announce upcoming episodes on the CPNP social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you are a CPNP member and have a topic idea, feel free to email us at cpnp at naspgan.org. The information discussed during these episodes are subject to change over time with new developments and advances in the field of medical nutrition therapy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye.